Let us pray. Calm us now, O Lord, into a quietness that heals and listens. Open wounded hearts to the balm of your word. Speak to us in clear tones so that we might feel our spirits leap for joy and skip with hope as your resurrection witnesses. Amen. Today our scripture lessons comes from Galatians. verses 22 through 26. You may find them on your, in your pew Bibles on page 1063. Galatians 5, 22 through 26. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. Our next lesson is from Mark, the 11th chapter. I'll be reading verses 12 through 24. This is on page 922, I think it is, in your pew Bible. You may want to look it up. I'm going to delay the reading of that for just a moment as I start the message. I wonder how many of you have ever heard someone say, well, it's enough to make a preacher cuss when they're upset about something. That's an expression I often heard growing up in Mississippi from my grandmother who lived with us and also from my mother. I don't think I ever heard my father say it, but my mother and my grandmother would often say, well, that's enough to make a preacher cuss. And usually it was when they were upset or frustrated about something. Maybe they were trying to fix a, an electrical appliance and they couldn't do it. Maybe they were just bemoaning the state of the world at that time. But anyway, I often heard that expression, well, it's enough to make a preacher cuss. Well, having been a preacher now for some 45 years, and I think I'm qualified to speak to this, uh, if my grandmother and mother were still living, I'd say, Mama, Mama, you might be surprised how little it actually takes to make a preacher cuss. <laughs> On the other hand, you'd think it would take a lot to make the Lord Jesus Christ cuss, wouldn't you? Well, we're going to look at a passage this morning called The Cursing of the Fig Tree and try to figure out uh, why did this take place? What is the message here? What was Christ trying to say then, and what is he trying to say now to his disciples? 
But before we look at the occasion when he did curse, I want you to notice when he doesn't curse. When and where he doesn't curse. He doesn't curse uh, when he is accused of being in league with the devil by some of the Pharisees who said the only reason he can do these things he's doing is because that's the power of the demonic within him. He doesn't curse then. He doesn't curse when his disciples, his closest followers, fail to understand his mission or his purpose and are confused by what he's doing. He doesn't curse then. He doesn't curse when his mother tries to force his hand at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. When he was feeling personally, it was before his time to show his power. He doesn't curse when his whole family comes out to try to retrieve him. They're worried about his mental health. He's doing some strange things there in Galilee, and they want him to come home and give up this ministry. But he doesn't curse then. He doesn't curse in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil on at least three different occasions. He doesn't curse when he's accused of things for which he was not guilty by the authorities. He doesn't even curse when Roman soldiers are nailing him to a cross. No, it was an occasion far different from any of those. An occasion that mystified and confused and perplexed his disciples then, even as it does still today. It's an event an instance that happened along the road in between Bethany and Jerusalem. So let's look at it now. Beginning at verse 12. On the following day, that's the day after the entrance into the Holy City, Palm Sunday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priest and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning... As they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and, if you, say, and you do not doubt in your heart, but you believe that you will, what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer... Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to notice there are three different episodes in this story. 
The first episode is when Jesus and his disciples are making their way from Bethany into Jerusalem. Jesus goes to the fig tree. There are no figs on it. It's in leaf. It's nothing but leaves, we're told. Um, and then he issues this curse, as it is called. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. As if he was really put out about something. The next episode is the cleansing of the temple. He gets into Jerusalem. He goes immediately to the temple where he proceeds to turn over the tables of the money changers, drive people out of the temple, tell them they can't even walk through the temple. And he says, you've made my father's house a den of robbers. This is supposed to be a place for all the nations. The third episode, the following day, he's coming with his disciples again to Jerusalem and they see that the fig tree is withered. And Peter remembers, and he asks the Lord about it. And Jesus gives this rather enigmatic response about a mountain being moved if you have faith sufficient. Several years back now, I did a series of sermons on some of the troubling texts in the Bible. This was not one of them, but it well could have been. Because this passage has troubled disciples from the first century to the 21st century. Trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. What is the message here? What is Jesus trying to teach or to demonstrate? And it's troubling on several different levels. It's troubling to begin with that we see Jesus here cursing. He doesn't issue curses. He issues blessings. He's always blessing people, not cursing them. So that's strange. It's not the Sunday school Jesus we remember from our childhood days. What is it that so aggravated him that he was willing to curse, or as we like to say in the South, cuss, same thing? The second troubling thing is just the anger that Jesus displays here. Clearly he's aggravated, upset, carries over when he gets into the temple. It's really because of the temple we're going to see. So Jesus was angry. We don't see anger much in Jesus, do we? Fact is, my mother and grandmother said, nope, Jesus never was angry. He couldn't be angry because he was without sin. And sin's one of the seven deadly sins. I mean, anger is one of the seven deadly sins. This isn't anger, my mother would say. It's righteous indignation. Well, I don't know how you discern between anger and righteous indignation. If you were the money changers in the temple or if you were this little fig tree, could you tell the one from the other? I don't know. I think they very much are alike. The problem with anger is that we're angry at the wrong things or about the wrong things. The Bible says, be angry but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So apparently, some anger can be appropriate and it seems clear to me that Jesus is angry in this moment. Certainly angry when he gets into the temple. The third troubling thing about the text is the little barren fig tree is the object of the cursing. It's the fig tree that suffers the brunt of the curse here, so much so that it's withered to its roots on the following day. Now that troubles some people. I guess anyone with environmental sensitivities might say, well, that's not a very good example of caring for God's creation, is it? Cursing the fig tree so that it's destroyed. Usually people in the church, Christians, have one of two ways they try to deal with troubling texts. 
neither of which is appropriate. Either they say, well, we'll never understand this text. We just have to accept its truth because we don't have the faith sufficient to understand it. We're not spiritually mature enough to understand what's going on here. So it's not the Bible's fault. It's our fault. We're just not with it spiritually. Well, if you believe that, and you may, it goes against the constitution of our church. Did you know that? The Westminster Confession of Faith says, All things in the scriptures are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So those who are drafting the Westminster Confession of Faith recognize, as we do, surely, that there are parts of the scriptures that we struggle to understand still. Maybe a day will come when we do understand, but we don't always understand all these troubling texts. But there, nonetheless, we can't dismiss them or ignore them. I guess we can, but is that smart? That's the other way people respond to troubling texts. Well, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to teach that. I'm not going to preach that. I'll do something else. I guess, in a sense, we all have a little Bible within the Bible. We have our favorite passages, the things we go to preeminently and maybe repeatedly. There's some things we avoid. I avoided preaching on the book of Revelation for almost did it successfully throughout my ministry, but usually had to, I had to give in. It was wrong to ignore that, even though I, some of it is so misunderstood and misinterpreted. But at any rate, that's one way of dealing with troubling texts. You just refuse to deal with them. Not unlike Thomas Jefferson. He was one of our founding fathers. I don't know if you've ever seen a Jefferson Bible. Notice it's a lot thinner, a lot smaller than other Bibles. Jefferson, when he was the third president of the United States, took a razor to the scriptures, cut out what he liked, what he approved of, dismissed what he didn't. Of course, he was a deist. He wasn't really a Christian. So he took out of the Bible anything that referred to the divinity of Jesus or any miracle in the scriptures. He took that out. That's all supernatural. He didn't believe that. So what you end up with is a Jesus who's a philosopher who says, says a few good things, but uh, he's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. Um, at any rate, some people just dismiss these uh, difficult passages. But we need to look and ask, what is Jesus telling us here? What's the problem? What's the solution? Please understand from the get-go that Jesus is not upset with the fig tree. Kim reminded us, the figs come first, the leaves come later. There weren't supposed to be figs on the fig tree. Jesus wasn't simply hungry. The fig tree reminded him of something else. The fig tree is a symbol for Israel. It represents the people of God throughout the Old Testament. Israel is spoken of as a basket of figs or as good fruit, good figs. You can read this afternoon the 24th chapter of Jeremiah. And you'll see the story of the two baskets of figs. One good figs, one bad figs. The good figs represent God's people who were faithful when they were carried away into exile. The basket of rotten fruit recognizes those who gave up their faith when they moved into exile and didn't come back home to Jerusalem at the end of their exile. So it's very much like if, if the fig tree represents Israel and the people of God, it would be like someone writing a story and being critical of a bald eagle. Maybe how a bald eagle attacks other uh, smaller birds or uh, steals eggs or something. I don't know. They could say anything negative. You might say, hey, they're not talking about a bald eagle. They're talking about the United States of America. You know, that's our symbol. But the symbol for Israel was the fig tree. And Jesus is put out with the fig tree. Why? 
That's why I chose that image on the front of your bulletin because this was one of the images that deal with the cursing of the fig tree that shows in the background the temple in Jerusalem. That was the problem that Jesus has in mind. It's not simply the barren fig tree. It's the barren lives of his people, the barren practices of the temple in Jerusalem, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, but was being used by those in charge to abuse the poor, to take advantage of them. The temple had become corrupt, just like the lives of God's people had become corrupt. You've ever heard of the text called the Essenes? You know of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, they're the ones who are not fair, you see. The Sadducees, they're the ones who are so sad, you see. <laughs> but there were the Essenes. The Essenes objected to the practices of the Jerusalem temple, and they fled into the wilderness. They set up a community in Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found later in 1948. But they objected to what was going on in the temple because it was corrupt. People were only interested in the rituals of religion and the external aspects of religion, not the internal aspects, uh, aspects like prayer and repentance and faithfulness and justice and holiness and compassion. People were being abused by the temple. Poor people who couldn't afford the sacrifices, foreign people who were not being included. There was a court for the Gentiles in the temple, but most Gentiles wouldn't go there because of their reception. So Jesus is upset how God's people are not bearing the fruit that God expects them to bear. So please, don't think Jesus has anything against figs. He doesn't. He has something against the Pharisees and their hypocrisy and how have they wanted to look pure and righteous and holy, but inside they were foul and corrupt, just like the story Jesus tells about the cup. You're so concerned that the exterior of the cup be clean, but the inside is polluted and foul. You're not worried about that. And he is emphasizing that you have to look at the interior life. What's going inside of you? What is God doing in you? And are you producing fruit as a result of what God is doing in you? This whole scene is what the Bible scholars refer to as an enacted parable. This is designed to dramatize a situation and to teach a lesson. And that's the lesson Jesus is teaching here. Be concerned about the fruit that you are producing or are not, refuse, are not producing in your own life. Don't be concerned just in empty rituals. Don't be concerned about other, how other people see you. Be concerned about how God sees you and whether or not your God sees you as producing any fruit in your own life because that's what you're called to do. In Jesus' day, the temple was withering away at its roots. People were interested only in the appearance of religion, not those religious practices and disciplines that shape us as a people, not in repentance or in prayer or in faith or in forgiveness or in justice or in hope or in love. The true fruit of real religion was absent from the temple in the Lord's day, even as it was absent from the lives of God's people. And we should know that what Jesus expected of the temple in his day and what God expects of his disciples today is no different. We too are called to produce fruit, to make a difference 
in the lives of our families, the life of our community, the life of our church, the life of the larger world. We're still called to repentance and faith and prayer. We're still called to practices and disciplines that include the foreigner, the outsider, the least, the last, the lonely, the lost. What are we doing in our lives to bring these people into the temple, into the church, so that they too can have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with their neighbor? The charge for God's people in Jesus' day is the same as God's charge for people in the church today, disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to ask again and again about ourselves as individuals and about the church of which we are part. What are we doing for others? How are we making an impact on our community and our world? Are we bearing no fruit? Have we no interest in repentance or prayer or faith? If we don't, then it's enough to make a preach cuss, dadgummit. <laughs> I started to say something more than dadgummit. But you'd probably remember, oh no, that's when the preacher used a swear word, and you'll forget the message that was preached today. Because it's so easy in the church to focus on the minors and forget the major things. To worry about the little things that don't make a dime's worth of difference. Yeah, I said dime. A dime's worth of difference. Than the things that do make a difference. What do our lives say about our faith or lack of it? What kind of fruit are we producing? Now, what kind of fruit should we be producing, preacher? I'm glad you asked. Kim reminded us. Paul says it's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is operative in your life, then there's going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what God's people ought to look like. What does a spiritual person look like? Doesn't mean uh, uh, refer to how many pious phrases they can use. How many times you may see their face in church, although that's not unimportant. But what do their lives look like? What kind of fruit are they producing and what's the evidence of it? You see, Jesus was not just upset about the temple and the lives of those who were in the temple. He was concerned about their lives outside the temple. One of the greatest lectures I ever heard as a pastor was by Dr. Paul Ochtemeyer. He was a professor of New Testament at Union Seminary and he spoke at an evangelism conference in Charlotte some years back. I don't remember the, the year actually. But he talked about the use of irony in the Gospel of Mark. And it just blew our minds as he went through the Gospel of Mark and showed the ironic things that Mark is pointing out that we may never notice in a superficial reading of the Gospel. And one of the things he mentioned was this scene of the cleansing of the temple. And Dr. Ochtemeyer said, notice what he calls the temple a den of robbers. That's important, he said. A den is not where the robbing takes place. The den is where the robbers retreat to after they've already done the robbing out in the world. And so what Jesus is indicating here, it's not just what happens in the temple, but it's the practices of God's people out in the marketplace, in the justice system, in the community. Their lives are corrupt and fraudulent, not ethical or moral and not godly in the least. And yet they come back to the temple to look pious and holy. What lives are we impacting? How is the fruit evident in our own lives? 
You know, there's a Pharisee in every church and there's a Pharisee in each one of us because we're tempted to just be concerned about the things that matter to us but may not really matter to God. People in the church get worked up over the smallest things and refuse to get worked up over the things that really matter. I guess it's always been like that, but it seems increasingly more like that because so often we come to the church, what's the church going to do for me? It's all about me. Church isn't about you. God has called you, if he has called you, to put you to work in his vineyard. Not simply to bless you. You will be blessed by the work you do in the kingdom. But if you join the church just because of what it's going to do for you, you got the wrong outlook going in. How can I be used? If any of you are thinking of joining the church, join a church that's going to put you to work somewhere where your life can, lives can count in your own family, in your community, and in your world. We ought to be in a better position than were the people who frequented the temple in Jesus' day to know what God expects of us because we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons I wanted to deal with this passage because we're still in the season of Pentecost. We still are reflecting upon what does it look like when the Holy Spirit is operative in the church and in our individual lives. If the Holy Spirit is within us, then God can convict us of our sin because that's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. And the Spirit can illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we understand the Scriptures and know what the will of God is and also have the power through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be used to make a difference for God's sake and for Christ's sake in the world. And that's how Jesus responds to Peter. He is so much as says, if you only knew what was possible for you, you'd say, move this mountain, get up and go into the sea, and it'd go. We have no conception of what God could accomplish through a people and through individual persons who are fully open to God's filling and to God's use. I had the privilege of meeting uh, with the person that will be nominated next week as your new pastor and head of staff. And I told him in our conversation, it would be hard to find a church that has more potential than Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church. And I really believe that. The potential is unlimited. But tapping that potential is going to be a work, a labor of love and a labor of God with your new minister. Now, he's ready for the task. But you need to get ready and need to ask of yourself, am I on board or not? Is there fruit in my life? Am I a part of the community that's willing to be used to reach out and attract and serve others? Not just those who look like us or think like us, but all people. My house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations and all the people. If we only knew what God could accomplish in us and through us, we would become a transformative institution in this place, and far beyond outside these walls. Let us pray. Eternal God, give us the grace to open our lives completely to your spirit and the desire to be used of you in making a difference within the world. Help each of us so to live that your gospel will illuminate the dark places where you send us.
deepen our devotion and inspire our service that we may bring forth the fruit of your spirit that not only blesses others but also blesses us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.